So there's there there are two possibilities going on here. One, you're you're bringing up a term that I have never heard before. The the other possibility is that this is a term I've heard before, but it involves a language that uses pronunciation that's different from Latinate, and so you have no idea how to say it properly. It's an intensely 80s post-apocalyptic schlock film. Oh, and schlong film. You know, it's been over 20 years, but spoilers. Oh, okay. So, so the resident Catholic thinking about that, we're going for low Earth orbit. There is no rational here. Blame it on me after. And you know I will. I mean, it is two o'clock in the fucking morning where I am. I don't think you can get very much more homosexual panic than that. No, which I don't know if that's better. I mean, you guys are Catholics. You tell me. I'm just kind of excited that like you and producer George will have something to talk about that basically just means that I can show up and get fed. history of time where we connect nerdery to the real world my name is ed blaylock i'm a world history and english teacher here in northern california and uh last night in my uh, monthly pathfinder game i had uh, what i have to say is possibly the most satisfying critical hit i have ever scored in a tabletop role-playing game um we uh we we made our way through uh, a couple of waves of undead uh, ghouls and ghasts. And uh, we came face to face with uh, the big bad of the, the particular module in the adventure path that we are currently following. Uh, anybody uh, not familiar or anybody who is familiar, it's, it's uh, rise of the rune Lords. And last night we came face to face with the skin saw man. And, um, I managed on the second round of combat, uh, whiffed on the first round, second round of combat, uh, I managed to score a critical hit for a total of 50 points of damage in a single attack um, and had a suitably dramatic uh, moment of, of divine fury uh, that left the other players at the table uh, all uh, making remarks to the extent of um, remind me not to get on the paladin's bad side. Uh, so it's always nice to remind everybody at the table that lawful good does not mean lawful nice. Uh, and then in an even more satisfying moment immediately after that, later in the round, uh, my son uh, managed to score the killing blow on the big bad uh, with an offhand attack. I've, I've built his character to be a two-weapon fighter. And uh, he managed to score a hit with, a, with an offhand uh, dagger shot for eight points. And that's without a critical, so that was pretty impressive. We were all we were all pretty stoked. So, yeah, overall, uh, that was that was a really nice moment. Uh, felt good, man. Felt good. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a U.S. history teacher at the high school level up here in Northern California. And I got to say, you buried the lead. Your son is now playing D and D and has his own character. That is newsworthy. You yeah, talked about I, getting him into it. Oh, yeah. You okay. talked about getting him to take turns. You had yeah. talked about him getting to roll dice, but now yeah. he is now playing a character, a named yes. character, I assume. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, awesome. his, his character's name is a Zintified version of his name. Sure, so, sure. You know, but yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, I I broke in my children to a new tradition. Um, mm. They watched with me the encounter at Farpoint. Oh. Very first episode of TNG. Yeah. Okay. And though they both commented on the cheesiness of the graphics in space, okay, uh, yeah. and I, I just simply Fair. my response was it was 1987. Um, they both, yes, it was. Fuck you! Oh man! <laughs> yeah, we are further away God, from that debut than that debut was from the from, original from debut, the original series. Yeah, God, twice oh. as far. Matter of fact. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. Oh but, my God. All right. But uh they they got to so they got to see it. Um both loved that the the uh spoiler alert, by the way, uh the creature at Farpoint Station uh and its mate uh both look like cephalopods. Um yes. And they both jellyfish liked that. A lot. Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, or I'm sorry, is a jellyfish not a cephalopod? I don't think so. I'll they're a they're a yeah. they're a colony life form, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, they they both really liked that. Uh, they yeah. also William turned to me and he's like, "Wait a minute, that's Xanatos's voice." I was like, "That's right." <laughs> uh, and then I I pointed nice. out, I asked Julia, I'm like, "Hey, do you recognize the counselor's voice?" She's like, "That's Demona." Like, that's right. Uh huh. And yeah. you know, and then I point yeah. out, like, there's Cold Stone, and there is, you know, Elise's uh, little brother, and there is, and there is, yeah. Because yeah. everybody yeah. but Patrick Stewart basically and basically and showed up, yeah, in in gargoyles, yeah, yeah. So that was fun. Um, but <laughs> but they got to watch uh it's, the. <laughs> it's it's really funny to wind up like having having that experience in reverse, mm-hmm. like. You know, for for us, it was oh, dude, they got they got yeah Frakes to right. do to do right. Xanatos. That's really cool. Wait a minute, that can't be Marina Sirtis. That's totally Marina Sirtis. Right. Like what the hell? And then everybody else who showed up was just oh, okay, well, it's cool. just old home week, right? In the, yeah. in the recording studio, and and having it be in reverse, that's actually that's, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. I gotta say. So so yeah, they're digging it. Um. Oh, and you know, oh, who? Yeah, I said, do you recognize that guy's voice? They're no. I'm like, remember Puck? And they're like, wow, he's a really good actor. That's right. Uh, yeah, Brent Spiner. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, so, yeah. Also, he has the the most puckish sense of humor of all of them. Indeed, indeed. You know, so but yes, kind of they fitting. they they both really liked it. Uh, and Julia said, wait, is that the guy who always sits down with his leg going way out? I'm like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Because when she heard Riker's name, she's like, doesn't he sit down with his leg going way out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you, that you, was. You learned the memes before seeing the source material, child. You. <laughs> it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. So that's what's up. That's that what's going neat. on. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what do you got for us tonight? Because I got. Well, um, I have I have. I don't know. I don't know how to how to how to quite verbalize it. What I what it is that I have. But. Um, I have a lot to say about it. Okay. So there's that. It's perfect for a podcast. Don't know how to yeah. remember this. Going to yeah. say a lot. It's, yeah. Yeah. And there's a certain je ne sais quoi, but I know I'm going to say an awful lot about I know not what. Um, so I guess my opening question for you mm-hmm. 
is uh, do you have a connection, an emotional memory of a of a favorite toy from childhood? I really liked the helicopter motorcycle guy from Mask. Okay, cool. All um, right. So there's that. Uh, right. And then the Dagobah playset. Uh, Natch. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I'm trying to think of any other toys that I really was. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> the thumb wrestling pro, uh, WWE guys. So you stuck your thumb up his back and you could thumb wrestle with them. Uh, I'll show you the commercial between episodes. <laughs> okay. Um, but All right. my, my parents bought me a, a wrestling ring and it was the AWA ring with a canvas and the characters were like outsized for the size of the ring. Like the characters okay. were probably 12 inches high, but the ring was definitely made for like, you know, the, the two and seven inch. Eight inch. Oh, yeah. two. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, but the AWA ring, I used regular WWE thumb wrestling guys. Cause they were the perfect okay. size for it. And I had Hulk okay. Hogan, Nikolai Volkov, iron Sheik, big John nice. stud, nice. uh, uh, junkyard dog and i want to say i had one more whom i forget okay. but oh roddy piper i had roddy piper of course oh well, um, i mean yeah and i i remember my parents gave me a a, a wine box they they bought wine and yeah and yeah i said oh can i have the box and so i masking taped it and i labeled each you know spot for the things for the the individual wrestlers okay all right so i love the shit out of those those were really nice cool. and then gi cool. joes were pretty cool i had a all fair right. amount over yeah. time but none that like those wrestling guys now that you mention it those those thumb wrestling buddies that was yeah they that's were, the one where were... it's an emotional connection all right all right yeah. cool so in the summer of 1985 uh, mm -hmm. My father made a trip to Japan. Oh, now at the time, uh, oh, you he was... got GoBots, you lucky fuck. <laughs> no, no, even even oh, I'm gonna get, get into that. I'm gonna get into that. No, even luckier. Mm. Um, hey, I'm sorry. At... There's no such thing. <laughs> we have we have wildly divergent memories <laughs> of what was cool when we were when we were that age. There was a guy uh, named Copter, and he was a copter. Because of course cooler. that was what yeah okay it doesn't right, get cooler because right. <laughs> that's because that's who I'm working with here <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um at at the time uh huh uh, he was serving in a fleet composite squadron uh, which may or may not still exist VC one and uh, what that meant was he flew a whole bunch of different kinds of missions um he flew a four Skyhawks. Uh, a fair amount of the time to tow targets uh, for ships in the fleet to shoot at. Okay. And yeah. uh, his favorite job was using the A-4 Skyhawk uh, to act as uh, the aggressor in aerial combat training against Marine F-4 Phantom pilots from Kenny Oe. Uh, so he actually, that was, that was the one, the one time in his career uh, he got to play fighter pilot was uh flying the a4 skyhawk in air-to-air -air combat training against marine pilots mm -hmm. um and so those those were that that was his favorite part of the job and the towing the targets took up a certain amount of his time but the job that took up the most of his flight time uh was acting as the aerial chauffeur for the sink pack fleet commander-in-chief pacific fleet at the time, that was four-star Admiral Sylvester Foley. 
Uh, he left later in 85, got replaced by Admiral Lyons in 86. Uh, and Admiral Lyons would remain sink pack fleet for the rest of the time we were in Hawaii. But anyway, um, <clears throat> and there's all kinds of memories I have about my dad talking about or venting about his boss's boss's boss at home. But anyway, um, <laughs> for the job of uh, transport, pilot you know uh aerial chauffeur mm -hmm. uh he was uh flying the p3 orion uh that had been specially kitted out to be the admiral's you know personal airplane and he would be gone for a week to 10 days at a time depending on where he was going and he got to visit a whole long list of places around the pacific and indian oceans um and what that meant he'd be gone for like a week and uh, flying to wherever they were going would take a day and a half flying back would take a day and a half. Uh, and they'd have, you know, two shifts of flight crew and then the ground crew for the airplane. And then the Admiral staff, they had a whole bunch of people flying, but while they were, where, and doing whatever, and that meant that my dad and the other members of the flight crew were technically on call, but they were left in their own devices. Okay. Uh, and so in a lot, in a lot of places, uh, that meant they played a lot of golf, uh, <laughs> in the Philippines, in, uh, a whole lot of different places. They, they spent a lot of time on the golf course, uh, on the Island of Diego Garcia, which dad must've visited at least four or five times, uh, over the time that we were in Hawaii, uh, that meant uh, taking along a fishing rod and going out on the beach and surf casting and doing that. But every time they went to Japan, universally for everybody, that meant shopping. Mm -hmm. Because this was the mid-80s and Japan was the place to get all the cool shit. Okay. So it wasn't because it was like a duty-free center or that the dollar went super far there. It was specifically the items that you could get were... It was really it was cool a combination. It was a combination of all of it. Oh, okay. it was, it was, okay. those those were also factors. But but this this was, um, like my mother's first Walkman. Mm. He he bought in in Japan. Our first VCR he got on a trip to Japan. Okay, uh, it was a Panasonic, and uh, to my great chagrin at the time, uh, mm -hmm. but my father's credit, it was VHS. Uh, not not Betamax, even though that which, was a superior like, technology, and it... it was it was a it was a superior technology. And like every time we went to the video rental place on base, I remember like walking into the beta section and being like, literally everything I want to watch is on beta, right? But I got to go over here to the VHS aisle, <laughs> you know. And I say it's to my father's credit because like he he you know, talk to a bunch of people and figured out that, no, no, that's, that's the format. That's going to be the one that's going to, that's going to last. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, we got that there and, uh, a pair of replica samurai swords, uh, mm -hmm. which were a Christmas gift, uh, one year, uh, for me, which naturally I still own and treasure beyond, beyond measure, uh, despite them being really, really, really cheap knockoffs. Uh, that's like fair. I've I've grown up and and developed like an understanding of like what what makes a sword a good sword and they certainly are not but I treasure them beyond beyond reason. Mm -hmm. Um and most importantly for this episode 
he brought back a VF-1S Strike Valkyrie toy in the colors of Vermilion Squadron from the anime film Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. Now, it caught his eye mm-hmm. because he he was, you know, in the toy store looking for something to bring back for me. And to him, it looked in its in, in the form that it was in the box. It was in the form of a jet. And it looked like kind of a stockier F-14. Okay. Which he looked at and was like, okay, this is cool because Naval Aviator, right? Sure. Um, it immediately rocketed to the top of my favorite toy list when he brought it home because it was a fighter jet that turned into a giant freaking robot. Oh, so uh, it was all but not a transformer. It, no, it okay. was not a transformer. It was not from Takara Toys. Uh, it was from uh, the manufacturer. Oh, saying it was from Bandai would be tempting, but I know it's wrong. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But uh, th- this particular, th- the model that I got as a kid is no longer made. Mm. Uh, but ones like it are referred to as high metal, H-I metal. Uh, it had a number of parts that were die cast metal. Mm. It had landing gear that were spring loaded mm. and and could be retracted and deployed. Uh, it was just about a foot tall. In robot mode it had a third mode that was like a fighter jet with arms and legs and it came with an extensive set of accessories including underwing ordnance a gun pod and a pair of gigantic rocket boosters okay it is really it is really hard really hard to overstate just how incredibly cool this thing was to nine or ten year old me mm-hmm. what my dad didn't realize was uh part of the reason it was so amazingly cool to me was uh he had bought me a toy tied to my absolute favorite cartoon series Mm. at the time okay gem and the holograms now a little yes yeah yes precisely because we all remember the episode of gem and the holograms where the gigantic alien hunting robot showed up and started shooting everything up yeah yeah, no, it, it it was hunting the misfits, and it was the time that the holograms had to protect the misfits. Right, <laughs> the the time. Right, right. yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I know you didn't uh, watch the Wuzzles, and there was obviously a guest spot on the Wuzzles uh, that it used because the Wuzzles are all about. Yeah, and if you go back to our episodes of cartoons that deserved more, uh, you will find my my discussion of the Wuzzles. Uh, but they were also a hybrid, so it made sense that they guessed it on that. Um, and if I recall okay. correctly, it was the finale of the Monchichis where uh, the 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 Macross Plus team showed up and and killed them all in an ethnic cleansing uh, to to make it okay for uh, the Smurfs. Yeah, and you know what? Um, there's a part of me that really wants to get Ralph Bakshi on the line. <laughs> Because that's exactly the kind of shit he'd do. Like, okay, I, I need you to find a way to license these properties. <laughs> and this is what I this is what I need you to do. Pardon, I, I left out one important thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> this is what I need you to do. <laughs> Bump another line. Okay. Sure. So now um the Transformers mm-hmm. since September of eighty four. Right. Okay. And talked about G.I. Joe in episodes 209 through 212. Mm-hmm. You did a masterful job of connecting the latchkey kid phenomenon 
uh, very solidly to the telling a story to sell toys cartoon era. Mm -hmm. And Transformers was another example. That's Uh, true. Very notably, it was few. Yeah, very notably, it was fueled by toys from the same manufacturer, mm-hmm. Hasbro. Right. Now, I was not, I was not a true latchkey kid. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom at the time, so I was the beneficiary of the marketing without having yet uh, the downside of the semi-abandonment. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that that wouldn't happen until middle school, and that's that's a, com- a fish of a completely different color. Um, so now we're, we're rewinding the clock a little bit in Christmas of 1984, Mm -hmm. uh, GI Joe figures and transformers took up basically like my whole wish list, like, Uh, like everything that was on my list, you know, would, would have been, would have been from those, from those two series. I desperately, desperately, desperately wanted blue streak, like having, having seen the, the toy Mm -hmm. in the store. Blue Streak was the one that I looked at, and I was like, "Oh my god, I want that one." I See want that now, one. if I the, recall the, correctly, the, the RX Seven. I mm-hmm. want that one. There was Blue Streak. Is is he one? Uh, I might be mixing up names. Blue Streak, uh, Sky or Starscream and Skywarp. Correct. They were like a trio of fighter pilot or fighter planes. Uh, you have you have the last two names correct. Those okay. are both Decepticons, and they are both aircraft. Right. Blue Streak was one of the Autobots. Oh, he was. Um, he, yeah, he was a twin. That even even in Gen One, Hasbro was already doing this. Oh, he was with Sunstreak. It was all the same toy. It was the the red the red sports car and the and the and the yellow sports car. Yeah, or is there a different twin? Uh, no, no, those 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 were a different pair of twins. Okay, uh, that was Sunstreak, Sunstreak and, and I want to say Sideswipe, but uh, I could be wrong. That might have been Sideswipe. Mm-hmm. The red one might have been sideswipe. Okay. Um, but Blue Streak was twinned with Prowl. Oh, okay. And Prowl was the RX7 pursuit cop car. And Blue Streak was the metallic blue painted RX7. The, okay. the really sharp, sporty looking one. Uh and for whatever reason the the, the Ferraris, uh, you know, Sunstreak and Sideswipe, I like just because I, I wasn't like a car kid. Mm-hmm. Like I had friends who like the first time they saw the Lamborghini gosh, God, this is amazing. And right. I was like, it's a car. Like, sure, sure. Yeah, it's cool, oh, but by it's, the way, it's, it's Sunstreaker. I was wrong. It was there's Sunstreaker. Sunstreaker. Okay. And then yes, yeah, Sideswipe was his twin brother. So Okay, there you go. Yeah. I was a hound fan, um, and so. Oh, there you go. Yeah, hound was the I jeep who could do sense. the uh, hologram. Yeah. So. Yeah. He didn't get yeah, yeah. a guest spot on Gem and the Holograms. Oddly enough. Oddly enough, you'd yeah. think he would have. Yeah. That would actually. Made sense. I do but think no. though that Gem and the Holograms did have, um, the uh the Geraldo Rivera guy, um the 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 cutout for Geraldo Rivera. They did. Um, they had it. They did. Um, yeah, they the, did Geraldo Rivera XP. Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, he was there. He was, I think he was in Transformers. I know he was in G.I. Joe. And he was in the mm-hmm. um oh god, what were they called? They were the I, I talked about them in that in the the cartoons that deserve more. The the inhuman type things, the thing inhumanoids. The inhumanoids. He was in, in that as well. Yeah. So that means all those universes exist mm-hmm. in in tandem or in in the yes. same spot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, anyway, and you like the RX seven. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So um, every time, literally every time my mother and I went to the Pearl Ridge uh, shopping mall, uh, I wanted to go to the toy store uh, that sold not only the Hasbro Transformers, but because it was Hawaii mm-hmm. and we were in the middle of the Pacific, uh, uh, you could also get the Takara Tomi made Japanese versions of the toys. And they were <clears throat> more expensive. Mm-hmm. And in in social circles at school, uh, having the Japanese ones was a a power move. It was it was a prestige thing because um, there was there was like this this certain idea of them being somehow more authentic. Mm, like transformers like transformers weren't like we didn't treat transformers like well you know they're knockoffs but like the japanese ones were the elite version um and i do think looking back uh with with an adult perception of what i remember i do think that um the japanese made ones the molds were a bit better okay and the fit and the and the finish was a little bit tighter okay um but anyway so um and and this this is a gateway to step back a little bit because there's a trend going on at the time mm-hmm. in media and as a kid for a while i assumed that my experience with japanese inspired cartoons was because i spent the time i did in the middle of the Pacific where one of the stations on, on the dial mm-hmm. literal dial, cause mm-hmm. you know, 1985 uh, was, you know, a, a local affiliate essentially almost of NHK from Japan. Like I've talked oh, okay. before about sure. how, like, you know, if I stayed up late enough and I somehow got away with it, I could sit and watch, uh, you know, actually really age inappropriate ninja stories straight from Japan, like, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the TV. Um, and I, I, I had this idea for a while, uh, of like an, an over an over, uh, overemphasis, I guess, uh, or overestimation of the exceptional ism of my media landscape mm-hmm. when I was, when I was that age, but it turns out, um, that really a lot of what I was seeing kids back on the mainland in, mm-hmm. as we jokingly referred to it, Amarikashima were, were watching a lot of the same kind of stuff. And a lot of anime series were getting a lot of attention from animation producers and the distinctive art style of anime got some very notable exposure. Hmm. And there's kind of a lot going on here. Um, in the mid eighties, uh, part of what was going on was the expansion of cable TV. Okay. And you, you talked about this uh, in, in prior episodes mm-hmm. that um, there was uh, suddenly this, this explosion in the number of households that had access to cable yeah, that was also and, in the G.I. Joe episode. Yeah. As well as the uh, the Hulk Hogan episodes, I think. Yes, yeah. yes. The Hulk cable Hogan episodes we got. Yeah. yeah, basic cable. It it There are so many things about the media landscape that that changed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened was there was suddenly this profusion of channels. Instead of only having 
you know, three channels, or if you were in a really big market, maybe five channels available. Right. Right. With with a cable box, um, even if you didn't have premium cable, even if you weren't subscribed to the Disney Channel, well, actually, no, I'm sorry, Disney Channel was part of like basic cable plus, like it wasn't free anyway. Even if you didn't have HBO or Cinemax or any of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. there were a whole host of other basic cable stations that that you know there was this profusion of them at the time one of those basic cable stations was nickelodeon Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh which you know found its niche as you know we're we're going to be kids program a a family friendly uh station that you can you know tune tune to us and parents can understand that as long as doing anything you know wildly inappropriate you right. Know. The most inappropriate then, thing you'll see is Dobie Gillis reruns. Yeah, and that was actually yeah. later. Dobie Gillis reruns wasn't until Nick at Night, which true. is true. True. Uh, half a decade or no, so. No, I mean, later. I remember seeing a lot of black and white stuff in the evenings on my friend's uh, Nickelodeon. Like I didn't have cable, okay. so it was a treat, okay. you know, kind of thing. But right. but yeah, they they would show a whole bunch of different like Donna Reed, Dobie Gillis, stuff like that. Yeah. They didn't quite yeah. market it as Nick at night for a little while, uh, but they were okay. essentially programming that um, uh, largely to to fill space. Um, you know, they have all this oh, yeah. time boom let's let's do it so uh but well it's, that, a, it's a go on yeah it's it's during the same time period that we end showing up and everybody is at first you know telling ted turner what the fuck are you going to do with a 24-hour news cycle right like what what and for a while they were just kind of throwing whatever they could at the walls trying mm-hmm. to see what would stick yeah so nickelodeon and cbn uh, cable Bible Network, I think, something like that. Yeah, uh, which later became the Family Channel. Uh, in particular, uh, were working really hard to try to find programming. They were mm-hmm. they were looking for whatever they could, and in their search for material, uh, they found dubbed versions of Japanese cartoon series, mm-hmm. and they said, "Well, okay, we can work with this." And they and they and they started putting them out on the airwaves. Now, <clears throat> there had been other Japanese cartoons that had been dubbed into English and heavily edited uh, and put on the airwaves. Uh, the most notable example of that is Speed Racer, mm. which had been in syndication in the United States back in the I want to say the 1960s. Um, but in the case of Speed Racer, um, they had. Uh, just taken taken the the film stock uh, mm-hmm. from from Japan, and the producers of Speed Racer had had taken that and watched it without having any understanding of what the actual scripts were, and they had just cut it and edited it and made shit up. Yeah, it was like found poetry, but with yeah, yeah, like really really low end <laughs> animation because it yeah. was fairly low end, like. It was it was a lot of still frames, a lot of mm-hmm. slight movement behind the frame, and then you know a mouth that looked like a guppy's mouth. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It was it was low end 
Yeah. yeah, not not high quality. It was like the early Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, comparable, comparable. Yeah. So, um, so that that had had been out there for a generation before you and me. Mm-hmm. But in the eighties, Nickelodeon and CBN took series that were another generation older, were better animated and uh they actually put in the effort to like look at the scripts and have somebody translate them Mm -hmm. for real um and so we got series like uh the mysterious cities of gold Hmm. do you remember that one at all no oh man it was a head trip um it was a Japanese made cartoon series that they made in, I want to say it was made in cooperation with uh, South American production companies as well. And uh, the main character was a boy who uh, essentially stowed away, if I'm remembering right, stowed away on a Spanish galleon during the age of exploration. And, yeah, it, it he he wound up falling into an underground kingdom and he and you know a group of other other characters were on a quest to try to find the lost cities of gold. It was this okay. trippy, yeah, fantasy, historical fantasy kind of thing led into like a connection between Latin American civilizations and the Atlanteans and like it, yeah. It was it was amazing stuff. Uh but yeah. Okay. Uh still very very uh, what what we would look at and say, well, this is this is focused at eight and nine year olds, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the series Bell and Sebastian. That one uh, I think I know uh, about a little girl and a and a very large dog. Mm-hmm. Um, Superbook, which interestingly enough was stories from the Bible. This one's from CBN. It was stories from the Bible that had been animated by a Japanese animation studio. Interestingly enough. Um, the flying house and, uh, one that I was, um, uh, particularly fond of Transor Z, which, uh, started out as a giant robot series called Mazinger Z, uh, which then got translated into English and, uh, is descended from, uh, a Japanese comic series that is kind of one of the foundational, series of the giant robot genre okay so um so now all of these Mm -hmm. went onto the air before voltron or the transformers okay all of these were on basic cable Uh uh-huh and at the time our national relationship with japan was complicated be a good way to put it now this is at the point where smaller cars are becoming imports uh, yes, that are affordable. Yeah, and yeah. that had actually been an issue by '85. That had been an issue for half a decade. Um, so, in international relations, in 1975, uh, as Vietnam came to a close, uh, Secretary of Defense James R. Schlesinger uh, made some disparaging remarks about Japan as a defense partner. Um, how, how can you make disparaging remarks against a group that you have literally said you don't get to have any any armaments worth worth naming and will handle your defense? Like, 
Um, How because can you make that disparaging remark. Well, uh, number one, it's 1975, and you are trying desperately not to admit to yourself or the rest of the world that you've lost Vietnam. <laughs> that that probably has something to do with it. Sure, sure. Um, and two, this is the Nixon administration, which is how many oh. administrations removed from the end of World War II? Wait, 75. That's going to be Ford. Oh, you're right. It I mean, Ford. it Sorry. is still the Nixon it's administration, Nixon, but Nixon, yeah, Nixon, it's Nixon Ford. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I mean, it, so, okay. So is, is some of this also, um, the, the, the overgeneralization and, uh, vicarious hatred of some Asian group because you just got beat by one. And so now you got to go hate on another because I know I that don't... there was that shifting that happened between like the Chinese or the barbarians and the Japanese or the proper race. And then all of a yeah, sudden and then that got reversed or two. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's part of this. I okay. think, I think it is um, the, the Japanese at the time had a, had a very, very, very small budget, military budget as compared to their uh, GDP. Yeah, they had to by treaty. Well, okay, here's the thing. What what Schlesinger probably would have liked and what the Ford administration, the Nixon administration, and probably the Johnson administration before them, what they would have liked, I'm mm -hmm. sure, would be um, in order to create a deterrent uh to other other to the soviets because remember the japanese uh shared a border mm -hmm. uh with the soviet union that's right um in in i'm gonna say it's the kuril islands um yeah i yeah. think it's the kuril islands and you know they they shared they shared a nominal border with the ussr there mm -hmm. and i think those administrations would have liked it if, well, you know, you're not allowed to have a military, you know, that that is expeditionary in any way. But, you know, it, you you could maybe spend some more money on your self-defense forces and, you know, and there was also a lot of public that was very anti-nuke. Um, I know anecdotally. <clears throat> uh, my father uh, told stories about when he was aboard the Enterprise, uh, when they pulled into Tokyo Harbor, they would be met by uh, Japanese uh, uh, protest boats mm -hmm. that would come up alongside the carrier and dump dead fish out of their boats alongside the carrier and then and then film that. And on the news in Japan, the story would be a nuclear carrier pulls in and, hey, look at all the dead fish in the wake of the ship. Mm. This, is, this is my dad's, you know, relation of the story. Right. Which, you know, I mean, there's there's bias going on in several different directions there. Well, let's, let's assume but for a second that it's fully true and he's reporting it completely in good yeah. faith. That is still a very valid form of protest of the fact that you nuked us 30 years ago and we're still dealing with it. Well, yeah. Like that, that yes. would be fine as well. 
yeah yeah yes and and kind of getting around to saying that it's it's a it's a definite uh reflection of the sentiment within the japanese public uh toward the presence of nuclear weapons because mm-hmm. there were nukes locked up aboard the enterprise and aboard right. other us ships and us air bases on okinawa you know with the air force and right. whoever all else there were nuclear weapons there wow that's like just as, real quick to part of to, to just yeah. look at that for a second you are the only country <laughs> that has uh had nuclear weapons dropped on it you are the only country that has had a belligerent drop nuclear weapons on you um and now they're they they have dismantled your entire ability to fend for yourself um and now they are circling your islands with bigger bombs than the ones they dropped on you like just yeah. psychologically <clears throat> there's a lot going on there oh yeah on on another episode when i when i actually get into the genre implications of of this stuff this yeah like it's all over it's all over the Japanese storytelling landscape uh, post-war and into the 80s and all kinds of places. Um, yeah, it 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 lives very large in the mythic Japanese imagination would be a way of putting that. Yeah. So this this criticism got made by Schlesinger in in 75. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we just we were we were running away with our tail between our legs but trying to look like well no no we 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 meant to do that like you know um peace with honor like what the fuck does that even mean uh but then by the early 80s uh the relationship between the two countries uh was being redefined post vietnam mm-hmm. and successive japanese governments worked against those deeply pacifist public opinions to strengthen the Japanese self-defense forces. Uh, by okay. the way, remember the acronym SDF. Remember, SDF. remember SDF. Okay. SDF. Okay. <clears throat> um, and by the time my father was chauffeuring an admiral to and from Tokyo and Kobe and wherever else in Japan, he was going, uh, the coordination between the JSDF and U S military forces was very, very close. Uh, multiple defense manufacturers either sold systems uh, to Japan with federal permission uh, or else licensed technology to Japanese companies to produce themselves. Uh, very notably, the Japanese had their own version, still have their own version of the F-16. It's called the Mitsubishi F-2 Viper. Okay. Uh, which we we sold that to people, but the Japanese are one of only a few countries that we were like, no, no, here's all the plans crazy go nuts okay you know now on the international stage uh in specifically in 85 the nakasone government uh was moving in near lockstep with the reagan administration they were one of the first u.s allies to uh enact uh sanctions uh against various people that we wanted to sanction uh there was a misstep uh, right after the Iranian Revolution, uh, they they got oil from the Iranians, and that made us very mad. And they immediately they turned that around real fast. And ever after that, they were absolutely in lockstep internationally. 
Okay. Um, uh, and they supported U.S. forward stationing of missiles in Europe in 83 at the well, that, G7 summit. That would make sense that they'd support that. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. do that over there. <laughs> over there. Let yes. them see On how the they like side, it. Yeah. The other side of a continental landmass. That's yeah. fine. Thank you. We have a whole continent between us and that. That's great. You, right. Yeah. You're still threatening the same <laughs> oh. group. We get it. But Oh, yeah. Uh, France and Germany, you say? Yes, please do that. <laughs> by all means. <laughs> the UK? Yeah, by all means, please. Uh, uh, and they generally supported large U.S. military buildups in Japan uh, and across East Asia in order to counter uh, the USSR and China. Right, okay? right. So on take, the international... Take, make make the fight happen over there. Like, please, yes, please, please. draw... All the attention and all the wind on that side. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. 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 No, we think they ought to build. Yes. Build all the Navy bases in Singapore, please. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Malaysia. Yeah. Hey, Malaysia. Come on. Pick it up. We, right. We, come on. Yeah. Hey, I, I hear Africa. Timor. On, East you know. Timor needs a genocide. Can you can you go down there? Can you? Yeah. Oh, good. You have yeah, already. Like, oh, OK. Thank you. Like. OK. Well, yeah. 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 Oh, hey, South Korea. You guys. Right. You know. Um <clears throat> now at the same time, so so we have this this issue where on the world stage, when it's when it's you know, nations talking with each other, mm -hmm. um, Japan is like, you know, I, I don't want to simplify to say they're our hype man, but they're solidly, you know, standing somewhere in, in the rank behind us going, yeah. Yeah, you fucking tell him, man. Yeah. All that. All all of that just what he said, yeah, right? But at the same time, um this is also the era of massive economic paranoia. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. In the US about Japan's rapid industrial growth and their economic power. Right. Okay. Uh 1979 was the year that uh, Japanese imports uh, outsold U.S. built cars for the first time. That was 79. We wow. talked about that before in the oh, Battletech episode. episode. <laughs> the yeah. giant robot yeah, episode. Way, yeah. yeah, way back at the beginning. Um, and a, a whole long series for, you know, four decades by this time, uh, a long series of Japanese governments uh, had worked hand in glove with industrial conglomerates to strengthen their position on the world stage. Mm -hmm. They had immediately, and I mean, there's been a whole lot, there's been a lot of ink spilled, um, mostly here in the United States, but also in some places in Western Europe and other, other, other areas uh, that talks about, well, you know, they, they gave up. Uh, you know, uh, warfare as warfare, and they're they're they started waging economic warfare. If they couldn't dominate things uh, militarily, they'd do it economically, and this is how they did it. Right. And I'm I I have to say that there there are statements that were made by people in Japanese government and by people in Japanese industry that talked that way. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the issue there is 
the same kind of translation error that leads to us being really, really shocked when we hear that crowds in Iran chant death to America. Oh, just and a, what I mean a, by that, there's a tonal difference, not just a vocabulary difference. Yes, there's there's a tonal difference. There's a vocabulary difference. And and there is a a cultural element of the translation that doesn't come across. Right. When and, and that's partly tonal, I realize, as I say that. But when when a crowd in Tehran shouts death to America, you need to understand that in arabic and in in you know arabic culture in muslim culture uh when you know you get a flat tire you might say death to my flat tire you know right um you know death to this thing death to this thing and it's it's to us it sounds like an exhortation to murder (laughs) to to a native speaker of the language it's like it's i mean it's still not nice but it's it's like a fuck you yeah you know, it's, it's, it's not, along the lines it of god damn it yeah yeah it's yeah. like son of a bitch right you know mm-hmm. and and so the same kind of thing especially when you take into account that everybody who was writing government and economic policy in post-war japan had been living through pre-war japan in which the whole culture had been militarized and so when they use a phrase that translates into English as, you know, we have to fight warfare by economic means. Right. That's just an exhortation that like, okay, no, this is for the survival of our country. We got to rebuild. We got to be, you know, as the Japanese are really good at doing, we got to be 120% committed, mm-hmm. you know, because the Japanese are kind of the Gryffindors of of world cultures in the way that like no they have no chill right like like on a on a cultural level you just you don't half ass anything right in, if you in, commit like, to something you commit 100 percent yeah um yeah. and a failure to be 100 percent committed is a moral failing on a deep level sure and so when they when they use that kind of language to to an analyst who aren't native Japanese speakers and are just reading, you know, word for word translations of stuff. They're like, Oh my God, they mean to conquer the world. Well, well this is, I mean, this, this gets at the issue of a couple things. Number one, transliteration versus translation. Like translation oh. is at best imperfect and imperfect because you don't have the mindset of the language you're translating from. Yeah. Even if you have studied it, for years and years and years, your ability to communicate that to your superiors and explain to them like, okay, when they say this, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like, you know, it it means this actual thing, you know? Yeah. Um, So there's that. And, And then on top of that, I do find it interesting that a country that their solution to any problem is to declare war on it. We literally have a drug czar. Like, yeah. We have a war yeah. on poverty, a war on drugs, a war on homelessness. Um, yeah. We declare war on shit. And then for us to get all up in our feelings about like when somebody <laughs> says death to or when somebody says, hey, we we need to uh, do things like that, then it's yeah. like, what are you doing? What? Come yeah. on now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the other the other thing, um, there's a there's an issue of. 
um, paradigm. Like the the paradigm that we operate in as as products of our culture is on some levels different from the paradigm in which the people of Japan operate just because our our cultural legacy the yeah. the the things that we have inherited um are you know what what we refer to as you know judeo-christian ethics uh and and a legal system and the outlook that goes along with that legal system that we inherited from the english with some influences from the romans and like you know and and well, all of that with, shapes with influences yeah. from people who were fanboys of the romans like let's let's be real it wasn't like roman jurisprudence that really you know, oh, yeah, no. really no, pushed us in any way it's it's english fanboys who fetishized romanness yes yeah but I, your your Fair. point still stands this this yeah, idea you know. of of westernness like yeah however shaky a foundation it might be built on it is still yeah. a thing that uh was the underpinning culturally yeah. for how we run things whereas japan i mean you've got uh first off it's an island um it it didn't have expansion as like part of its on its land kind of approach to things like we had to make mm -hmm. a manifest destiny i'm not saying they didn't do imperial shit they absolutely did but like mm -hmm. Once they got to that, that was after they'd been contacted by, uh, you know, like there's so much, yeah. so many layers of it taking, I'm not going to say taking the wrong lesson from the world because that kind of puts it on them, but their, yeah. their maladaptations make a lot of sense. Uh, and, <laughs> and then to be yeah. so badly destroyed by yeah. the culmination of those efforts and the yeah. hyper-nationalism that then you get this Americanized 1940s sense of democracy pushed onto them without them which, getting a which say gets, with MacArthur yeah. being the one doing it. Like there's yeah. so many things wrong with that. Like, Well, and, 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 you know, the overlay that's, that was all an overlay over a culture that, that, you know, goes back to Confucianism. Right. And and the values of the underlying culture are rooted in Buddhism, Confucianism and animism, you yeah. know, uh, and and like you can you can introduce the idea that, no, no, everybody gets a vote. And we do this based on the will of the people and they're going to go, yeah, OK, we OK, we get that. We understand mm -hmm. that. But but their their outlook on on like okay and the people should be you know properly you know listening to the people who know better you know and 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 yeah there's the, that the up and down Confucian the line ideas of, of, of yeah. you know uh 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 ren and lee and in japan the idea of giri and you know all just i mean all of the social concepts that mm -hmm. that you're trying to graft this very, for lack of a better word, this very Western kind of set of ideas onto like, oh, it's deliberately Western and deliberately placed on them. Yeah, and, I mean, I I've seen the flyers where they're like before, after, and yeah, you know, it it it, it was a massive mm -hmm. shift, and and to their credit, they adapted to that, 
and yes like they they've done a very good job with that like that's the next step for them and in you know in in their culture yeah they have in terms of their outlook on it yeah so yeah and what someday um when i when i truly get ambitious with this i'm going to have to uh do something about um the the japanese uh kurishitan uh <laughs> And the relationship uh, that 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 um, faith tradition mm-hmm. uh, has with uh, Japanese uh, parliamentary democracy politics, uh, <laughs> because it's yeah um, they're they're both very you know Western ideas that have been grafted onto a a culture that came from a very different direction and took that in a very notable notable direction of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we, we've kind of drifted a field. The, the thing I was getting to was, you know, they, they had decided, okay, look, our economy has been devastated because we, we threw all of our, uh, all of our production capacity into the war effort. Right. And we got our, our production capacity got bombed into shit because it was all directed into the war effort. Uh, we have to rebuild from almost a pre-industrial level before we're going to be able to get back to a point where we can manufacture and trade mm-hmm. on an equal footing with everybody else on the world stage. And so uh, the these successive parliamentary governments had worked very closely with industrial conglomerates in order to strengthen their position on the world stage. Mm-hmm. They had... Uh, like juiced the economy they had done you know their their fiscal their uh not fiscal policy although it is fiscal policy their monetary policy and their tax policies had all been designed to give their manufacturing base like every advantage and all tons of subsidies um and of course they had enlisted labor unions like i've talked about in previous episodes where the relationship between unions and management in japanese companies was like to an american union worker they'd be like i'm sorry what you 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 uh, you, uh, huh you know right right uh, you're all on the same team like must be nice they're they're the capital class and we're the workers and they're trying to fuck us every way they can and we're trying to well, no, that's not, no, no, no. We're all working, you know, for the good of the organization. And like, we got to right. like, what the fuck? I mean, it's again, it's a paradigm thing, but all of these, all of these groups were working together because like, otherwise everybody's going to fucking starve in the years right. immediately post-war. Right. So, um, our occupation forces had, uh, broken up and forcibly broken up uh, the Zaibatsu of pre-war Japan, mm-hmm. uh, which had been one of the forces. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note that the Zaibatsu weren't really trusted by the far right. Now, what are Zaibatsu? Nationalists again? didn't entirely. Um, the Zaibatsu were vertically integrated uh, monopoly right. interests. So there'd be a holding company at the top that would be controlled usually by one extended family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they would control the entire supply chain and financing. So they'd they'd have banks involved. 
uh, and and they would control the entire supply chain and the financing for a specific manufacturing sector. So like heavy equipment sure. or uh, automobiles or uh, consumer goods or clothing or what have you, right? And so each Zaibatsu would have either one or several manufacturing companies producing and selling the final product, but all of the suppliers, all of the part makers, all of the, you know, everything would be controlled top down. Okay. Uh, in a way, like if you look at uh, vertical integration during the uh, Gilded Age, um, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that the, 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 you know, various robber barons of, of the Gilded Age that's what they worked to do and mm -hmm. that our government had to go in eventually and say, okay, no, you can't do that anymore. Knock that shit off. Right. Sure. So what replaced the Zaibatsu uh, were Keiretsu. And now okay. Keiretsu were uh, built uh, kind of out of, out of the ruins of the Zaibatsu and where Zaibatsu had been top-down systems dominated by a single family, mm -hmm. post-war Keiretsu were lateral structures with different companies having shared stockholding. So it'd be a network of, of companies that all, like, you'd have, uh, uh, for example, I'm just going to use the name Mitsubishi. The Mitsubishi Auto Company. On the board of Mitsubishi's Auto Company, there would be uh, members who represented an ownership stake from a financial institution. There would be members on the board who represented a financial stake from their parts suppliers. Okay. In return, Mitsubishi would have their own members on the board of the bank and on the board of the supplier. Okay. So they're all... They're all integrated with each other, but it is more lateral and less top-down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the corporate structure is still unified, but it's less dominated by a or family. Uh, one way of looking at it is the Zaibatsu were feudal. Keiretsu are more like the Iko-Iki or in a European example, the guild leagues. You know, um, uh, uh, cooperative organizations of professionals or tradespeople, right? Mm -hmm. Now, to American capitalist eyes, looking at it from the outside, they're like, wait, you broke up the Zaibatsu and now they're doing this shit. It's the same shit. Like, they're still, they're still all working together. Right. Like, you know, um, they're, they're all tied together. That's collusion. You can't fucking do that. That's cheating. Um, funny what they're and willing to call collusion when like when it benefits <laughs> when somebody, somebody else does it other than the yeah. ruling class no not not just when someone else does it yeah when it oh, benefits okay. anybody right. but the capital classes when they collude it's yeah. you know it's it's just business as usual but when somebody else colludes yeah. to the point where the benefits actually do work their way down to the working classes they're like oh that's not okay that's cheating. You can't yeah. do that. That's, that's not, that's, that's not fair. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> so, um, and, and there are also, you know, regulatory relationships with the government that got to be taken into account. Uh, you know, the, the government 
the Japanese government basically was like, okay, look, whatever you got to do, tell us what you need to do to get back into, you know, economically the top tier of competing with everybody else in the world. You know, we, we need, we need to get onto an equal trade footing with everybody else, whatever you got to do, we got to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so now, I mean, I've talked about this before in episodes 13 and 14, um, which, by the way, holy shit, that's, you know, 200 plus episodes ago. Um, but uh, the foundation of the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, uh, mm-hmm. which was, you know, formed by the Japanese government immediately post-war, mm-hmm. which worked to coordinate, like it was actively saying, okay, this is, this is the area where we're going to work with you to do this stuff. We're going to work with you to do this stuff and you get this subsidy and you get this subsidy and you get these tax breaks and like all of that. Um, and what's interesting is it's very capitalist, but it's very heavily government managed capitalist. It, you know, it's, it's just, social democracy like it's capital you can have capitalism but not so that it ruins everyone's life yeah um and so they also enacted tariffs and did stuff to protect japanese manufacturing um by 1980 japan had become the world's largest exporter of automobiles uh, Mm -hmm. surpassing first the germans and then the united states and we had this weird fear fascination with japanese culture uh, you know, which I which I talked about uh, right. back in episode three, all that time ago, um, and that filtered into uh, adaptation of uh, Japanese media. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Transformers, as a Hasbro toy line, came about when Hasbro executives visited the Tokyo Toy Fair in 1983. And at the Tokyo Toy Fair, they saw the Dia clone and microchange toy lines from Takara. They looked at this and they went, "We, we, we want to do this. Mm-hmm. This we can, we can make so much money off of this." They licensed both lines from Takara, Dia clone and microchange. They, and they decided again, Dia clone and microchange. Okay. Japanese company was called Takara Tomi. Okay. They unified them. They said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna take both of these toy lines. These these are the toys that we're gonna that we're gonna do out of them, mm-hmm. and we're we're not we're not gonna keep them as separate things. We're gonna unify them into one toy line in the U.S. Because if we keep them separate, it's it's, it's gonna create market confusion. You know, we we don't want to we don't want to deal with that. So it's it's all gonna be under the same line. Mm-hmm. And the first Transformers toys were released." in the u.s in 1984 alongside the tv series right and i think before we get into the transformer cartoon series and kind of what i'm what i'm leading into out of that Mm -hmm. i think this is a good place to pause Okay. And so what are you taking from this so far? You know, honestly, uh, we're we're getting into a lot of the economic history of a place that's mm. uh what a 13-hour flight away. Mm-hmm. Um 
what I actually am, am most interested right now is the fact that Hawaii is an American market, but it's not an entirely American market. And it could be on the bleeding edge of uh, Japanese uh, retail sales to the U.S. And you being mm -hmm. there, like mm -hmm. those things really interest me in terms of that kind of stuff. Because at the same time, Hawaii was not leading America into anything. Like that was no. still very much on the continent. Those decisions were being made, being made continentally. And yet... Mm -hmm. Like there, there, it almost feels like there should have been Hawaii as a test market for a lot of this stuff, both the cartoons, the toys, etc. But mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like that was the case. Um, well, what's what's really weird about it is mm -hmm. it, 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 I totally, I totally agree with you. Like it would make it would make perfect sense, like to me at my age now. Mm -hmm. If I were in marketing of any of this kind of stuff in, in that situation, I'd have been like, okay, let's see how this goes with the kids there. Right. You know, uh, for, for a couple of other reasons too, uh, Hawaii has a large, the word that comes to mind is transient, but it's, it's transient. It's not quite the right word. They, they, they have a large population of temporary residents. Right. Um, because especially in the 1980s, the, the percentage of the economy that was built around the army, Navy, air force, and Marine Corps, uh, was huge. And so many of my peers were military kids and we were going to be there for three or four years. And then we were going to go someplace else back on the mainland. Right. I mean, it's... and whatever we, whatever we picked up there, mm -hmm. we were going to take back. Right. 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 So, you know, and, and you also have a culture that's kind of got built into it, a greater appreciation of Japanese culture. Yep. Um on on many many more levels. Yep. Than I mean California was intensely anti-Japanese for so very long. Um yeah. culturally. And then yeah. you know, I mean Hawaii was the place that you didn't have internment. Like yeah, during that was, the war. That's what I was gonna point out. <laughs> like, was like, yeah, the one the one western state is the right. most extremely western state. That's right. the one where you didn't have yeah. The one where the and, attack actually happened. Like yeah. and, and yet and, you well, would not have been able to make that state work during the war if you hadn't yeah. turned all of the people who were of Japanese descent. So it just so you've got this built in if we sell them Japanese stuff here, they will appreciate it more. And then yeah. you've also got by osmosis, that appreciation of, appreciation of Japanese stuff and cultural artifacts and things like that that you can buy will then get carried back to the mainland by the military yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, and the military yeah. parents, too, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and yet I don't see that driving because all the dates that you're talking about are dates that I'm like, yeah, I, I had access to that shit, too. Like mm -hmm. all the all the things that are that could be driving it aren't, and I I find that to be probably there the most is, interesting part. In in some ways, there is a weird kind of weird kind of treatment of Hawaii as I think in in the media there is the there there are two forces at work uh, that that work against Hawaii in 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 that way. 
one of them is it's it's exotified and treated as this you know location like on the on the edge of the world right yeah um and at the same time i think for anybody who is doing programming or marketing or anything like that there is this tendency to look at it as a second or third rate market because the population is not very big also true. I think there's another layer too of it's the one place that you could travel to an exotic location in finger quotes without your passport. Like it it's very often treated as a state that's not a state. I mean it's it's almost like a Puerto Rico on steroids in most people's yeah. minds. Um Yeah, in a lot of people's minds, yeah. I mean hell, we had a president who was born there and there are still people who believe that he was not an American. Yeah. You know, and and it is our most yeah. recent state, uh, but yep. at the same time, like, I, I don't know how people treated Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Mexico from 1909 <laughs> to 1912 and shortly thereafter, yeah. but I'm pretty yeah. sure they didn't treat those as not American states, you know, and, and so yeah, there is a layer of because it's one of the two non-contiguous states, um, yeah. but it's also a place where not white people are whereas i yeah i was i was i was you beat me to that i was going to yeah. bring up the fact that it is a very 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 diverse state with a very right. large uh asian pacific islander population mm -hmm. uh whether you're talking about descendants of japanese uh workers or filipino or, or native hawaiians native hawaiian um you know all kinds of various groups uh yeah. chinese um i mean you know, it's, it's, it is heavily, uh, Asian enough, Asian Pacific Islander enough that as a nine-year-old, I figured out how to tell the difference between somebody's Chinese last name and somebody's Japanese last name, Sure, you know, uh, yeah. and make, and make distinctions like that because if I didn't, I would get my ass kicked and I was surrounded by people from those backgrounds sure you know and that that level of diversity i think is part of the reason middle america and uh you know media decision makers in you know big offices on the east coast and the west coast um tend to treat it as not not representative of you know america yeah you know, so I think that's why it ended up being <clears throat> a missed, missed chance to be the yeah. tester market. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I, I still think it's interesting that you were there as yeah. these things were coming across. So, yeah, it was a bonkers time. It was a particularly bonkers time to be there. It yeah. really was. So, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, what you reading? Uh, what I am reading right now, I actually, uh, just, started it in the last few days and it's a fascinating read um totally unrelated to what i'm talking about tonight but the cutting off way um gotta take a look at the subtitle here indigenous warfare in eastern north america from 1500 to 1800 uh, by wayne e lee um it is i think a really strong attempt to decolonize uh continental north american military history 
um, a lot of the historical, all, almost all of the historical accounts we have of Native American conflict and the Native American way of engaging in conflict, uh, the Native American way of war, um, all of our sources, uh, you know, from this, during this time period are from Western observers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characterizations of the way native communities fought wars against each other um, show a sadly predictable level of bias um, in in multiple different ways. And what Lee does in this book is uh, he takes a look at the specific logistical and cultural uh, background that native communities were uh, coming from when they made the decisions they made to fight wars in the way that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is, he is working to decolonize the study of native warfare. Um, And the title, the cutting off way is taken from uh, the way uh, Eastern Native American tribes referred to uh, the way they fought against each other. So it's it's a fascinating read. If you're into any kind of military history, it's a fascinating read uh, and a real eye opener uh, into kind of the level of uh, shitty uh, cultural chauvinism uh, and and racism that was involved in in the topic um, and all the history historiography around it uh, previously. So, yeah, that's what I'm reading, and I really recommend it to anybody interested in the topic. How about you? Well, this will not be any cheer, any more cheerful. Um, so Ben Kiernan is an author who has wrote definitive books on uh, Pol Pot, his regime in the Khmer Rouge. Uh, there were <laughs> just, just, just uplifting the morale of everybody in the room. Well, there. he wrote two yeah. books that were so detailed and so good that he was tried in absentia for crimes against the the People's Liberation Front Army, or I forget Khmer what the Rouge. exact name is. Yeah, of the Khmer Rouge. Um, Jesus. And, and found guilty in absentia. So he's not ever probably going to be allowed to go there. But uh, he wrote another book called Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to Darfur. Um, and he essentially highlights the four main cornerstones of a a society that has decided to go genocidal and like what to look for and stuff like that and it's really really good um so i recommend that one um plus lots and lots of alcohol or ice cream okay i i will say um i give him props for starting with sparta Mm -hmm. because i don't think sparta takes enough shit for being the bad a, guys, a, a, a genocidal ethnic cleansing uh, yeah. society, but yeah, all right, yeah. So, anyway, so that's that's what I recommend. Um, all right, uh, let's see. I I know that you. Well, actually, I don't know necessarily. Uh, is there anywhere you want to be found right now? Um, not at present. Okay, there is not any place I would like to be found. Uh, we can collectively. Uh, be found on uh, the Apple Podcast app, on um, 
Stitcher, uh, not Stitcher anymore, Spotify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, of course, our website, uh, wubba, wubba, wubba dot geekhistorytime.com. Uh, and wherever you found us, please take the time to subscribe, to give us uh, the five-star review that we, that you know, we deserve. And yeah, where, where can you be found? Uh, honestly, best place to find me right now would be on uh, August or not August. I'm sorry, March 1st or April 5th at the comedy spot All right. uh, at 8 p.m. No, 9 p.m. Uh, for capital punishment. We are making our triumphant return then. All right. So, yeah. Well, nice. cool. For nice. A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Laylock. And until next time, roll out.